0: brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Today I have for you something um, that will, I hope, help illustrate why the hermeneutic of continuity doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you really examine the question. It's an excerpt from Michael Davies, the late, great Michael Davies' work, Pope John's Council. Here he describes sort of much of the problems of the of some of the underlying concepts at Vatican II, how they permeate everything and how they would permeate everything after the council. I'll let him hear, from here on out speak in his own words, but just let me know if you found this helpful, and I may use uh, some of that book again in the future on a weekend upload. Anyway, thanks for listening. From the Church Before the Council by Michael Davies. Despite the abysmal state of the post-conciliar church, which should be evident to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear, there are still those who claim that we are living in a period of exhilarating renewal in happy contrast with the moribund church of pre-conciliar days. It seems that even in this age of sophisticated and instant communication there is still truth in the old saying, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Thus in an editorial published on Friday the 2nd of April 1976 the London Universe was able to proclaim that quote, "the holy father is leading the church forward to a new dawn of spirituality" end quote. and to reproach archbishop lefebvre for his quote, "refusal to move forward with the church of the 70s" end quote it would have been interesting had the editor of the universe added a few words on precisely where he thought the church of the 70s was moving he clearly considers that his paper is in the vanguard of this movement, and this is something with which no one could disagree. The universe had a circulation of three hundred eleven thousand five hundred and twelve in nineteen sixty three, which had declined to one hundred and fifty six thousand eight hundred and seventy two by August of nineteen seventy six, a decrease of fifty per cent. Pope John the twenty third most certainly did not believe the church to be in any sort of decline when he convoked the council. Indeed, when when he issued his Apostolic Constitution, Humane Salutis, convoking Vatican II, he made a special point of praying tribute to the vitality of the Church as it then existed. It has, he said, followed step by step the the change of people's and uh, social needs. It has opposed decisively the materialistic ideologies which deny faith. Lastly, it has witnessed the rise and growth of the immense energies of the apostolate of in prayer, action in all fields. It has seen the emergence of a clergy constantly better equipped in learning and virtue for its mission and of a laity which has become ever more conscious of its responsibilities within the bosom of the church and in a special way of its duty to collaborate with the church hierarchy To this should be added the immense suffering of entire Christian communities, through which a multitude of admirable bishops, priests, and laymen seal their adherence to the faith, bearing persecutions of all kinds, and revealing forms of heroism, which certainly equal those of the most glorious periods of the Church. When Pope John wrote this in 1961, who could have imagined that his council would be prevented from condemning the ideology of the Iron Curtain, which was responsible for this immense suffering? and prevented him from condemning it by a process of calculated fraud perpetrated by some of its members, an incident which will be fully documented in the future. In the same apostolic constitution, Pope John points out the contrast between a world which reveals a grave state of spiritual poverty, and the Church of Christ which is still so vibrant with vitality. A church vibrant with vitality in 1961, according to Pope John, and a church in a process of self-destruction in 1968, according to Pope Paul. Who would have believed that a debacle of such proportions could occur in so short a time? The heresies of Arius and Luther were gradual processes compared with this. The answer can only be found, as Pope Paul claims, by the entry of the enemy of man into the Church, an entry which the prince of this world made through the window to the world opened by Pope John. I am certain, remarked Cardinal Felici, Secretary-General to the Council, that when, in the Council, I pronounce the ritual words exent omnes everyone out, which all remember one who did not obey was the devil, he is always where confusion triumphs, to stir it up and take advantage of it. Reference to uh, the uh, letters from the Vatican by Cardinal Felici. It is fashionable for some Catholic modernists to decry the pre-conciliar church as concerned with little more than personal piety and indifferent to the injustice and suffering in the world. This is a monstrous travesty of the truth as every adult Catholic must surely know. Never in the history of civilization has so much concern been shown for the material needs of all humanity as that displayed by the Catholic Church in the present century. All over the world, selfless priests, members of religious orders, and lay Catholics have established countless schools, orphanages, homes for the elderly. Wherever need existed, Catholic relief agencies could be found ministering to the hungry, the homeless, and others in need. But in the preconciliar church, there was never any confusion about what the prime duty of the church was to preach the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God is preached, all else will follow. And there can be no doubt that the service rendered to the material needs of men, incalculable though this most certainly was, pales into insignificance besides the spiritual solace brought by the church to hundreds of millions of men and women of all races and all nations, the beauty and comfort of her liturgy, the grace of her sacraments, the inspiration of her teaching, These gave meaning to a life which for millions would otherwise have been meaningless. They gave the strength to endure in a life that would otherwise have been unendurable. And above all, the church was concerned with the truth, the truth that is Christ, the truth that is his gospel, the truth that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who sent his Son to die for us so that we can live with him forever in happiness in heaven. Monsignor Lefebvre considers that, quote, Master stroke achieved by Satan is to have everyone thrown into disobedience by virtue of obedience. The most typical example of this fact is that of the aggiornamento of religious orders. Through obedience, religious are made to disobey the very laws and constitutions of their founders, which they pledged to observe when they took their vows. This is the cause of the profound confusion which has spread through these communities and in the heart of the Church. In this case, obedience should be refused categorically. Even legitimate authority cannot demand the following of evil or disobedient acts. No one can oblige us to transform our vows into solemn promises. No one can force us to become Protestants or Modernists. The consequences of this blindness are evident and tragic. See a reference to The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. The prevailing attitude among so many of the clergy is to accept a particular belief or practice, not because it has an inherent enduring truth or value, but because it happens to be the current policy. Thus the very clergy who would have denounced, and rightly so, any layman who had attended a protestant service before the council will now denounce any layman who suggests that the faith could be in any way compromised by attending such services Attendance at such services although a matter of discipline most certainly involves vital doctrinal principles thus a matter touching upon the very nature of the church christ founded is seen in itself as something neutral all that matters is the current instruction issued by whoever is one rank higher of the hierarchical scale There is also a definite need for a widespread liturgical renewal in the Preconciliar Church, but a renewal on the lines advocated by the liturgical movement and approved by such popes as St. Pius X or Pius XII, a renewal based on the principle set out in Chapter 9 of Cramner's Godly Order. The pseudo-renewal which has followed Vatican II has nothing in common with the authentic spirit of the papally approved liturgical movement, as Father Louis Boyer, one of its leading advocates, has testified. True liturgical renewal would not have involved discarding the traditional liturgy to be replaced by a continually evolving and ecumenically inspired series of gimmicks. It would have involved utilizing the existing liturgy to its fullest potential, and this potential was infinite. In a parish where the liturgy came alive, the parish came alive in mesnil Loup in France, for example, between the years 1849 and 1903. The saintly Père Manuel transformed his parish into what could truly be described as a religious community, mainly through bringing people, his people to know, to love, and to play their proper part in the liturgy, above all by the use of Gregorian chant. If Père Manuel's peasant parishioners could sing Latin vespers in their church each evening, joyfully and easily, then any parish could have done the same. If such parishes had been the rule rather than the only too rare exception, then the history not only of the church, but of the world would have been different. What has been written here with regard to the need for liturgical renewal in no way conflicts with the reference to the beauty and dignity of the pre-conciliar liturgy made earlier in this chapter. While there were some cases of priests who tended to gabble their masses in a manner which made it unedifying, the majority conformed to the rubrics, and this, in view of the nature of the traditional mass, made it impossible for it not to be an impressive and inspiring ceremony. I well remember how, as a convert with wide experience of very vocal and emotional evangelical Protestant services, as well as several varieties of Anglican liturgy, the first experience of real worship that I encountered was at a low mass in a working-class parish. Only the server made the responses in the packed church, few present had a missile, but the atmosphere of reverence and, at the consecration, of palpable adoration was something which I had never experienced before, and which I shall never forget. Finally, when considering the state of the Church before the Council, mention must be made of the modernist fifth column, the pernicious adversaries condemned by St. Pius X, in his encyclical, Pascendi Gregis, Men lodged within the very bosom of the Church, determined to destroy her vital energy, and utterly subvert the very Kingdom of Christ. Much will be written of these pernicious adversaries during the course of this work, adversaries whose advance St. Pius X and his successors had been able to contain, but whose presence they had been unable to eliminate from the mystical body within which, like some sleeper, they waited for the right conditions to enable them to go get upon their work. Before the Council, the Church was indeed, as Pope John claimed, vibrant with vitality. There are a few signs of vitality, in the state of the decomposition of the post-conciliar church by the forces which drained her vitality away existed long before the council was called as i have made clear here and elsewhere the council created the situation which enabled these forces to launch their attack which has come near to destroying the vital energy of the church in the western countries at least Those who have read dr von hildebrand's trojan horse in the city of god and it is worth repeating that this is one of the small number of books which every concerned catholic should own will find that he makes a distinction between the official documents of the council and the so-called spirit of vatican ii he says a great deal in praise of the council itself its aims and its documents however as his book was written in 1965 such an attitude is hardly surprising in my own case the realization that not only the council itself was an event but even its official documents, cannot be absolved from responsibility for the present deplorable state of the Church, did not come until 1972, when I read the Abbe de Nantes' very radical criticisms of the conciliar texts. Until this point, as I could prove by citing many articles and pamphlets, I had, like Dr. von Hildebrand, always taken the line that the Council documents were beyond reproach, and that the present chaos was the result of their being contradicted or ignored. Indeed, it was with the object of establishing, if only for my own benefit, that the criticisms made by the Abbe de Nantes could be could not be justified, that I began to study the documents more closely. While I re- still remain a long way from accepting all his arguments, the case made in this, in this work is mildness itself in comparison with his critique, he has made it quite clear that these documents are most certainly far from being the irreproachable and even sublime restatement of Catholic truth, which so many of us had at first taken them to be. This view was confirmed when I had the good fortune to obtain a copy of Father Wittgen's book, The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. More will be said regarding this book later on. When I read Father Wittgen's book in 1973, I discovered the background of the formulation of the Council text. A clear pattern began to emerge, a definite logical progression from the circumstances in which the documents were formulated, the documents themselves, and the events which followed the Council. In view of the manner in which my own enthusiasm for the Council has been modified, I wrote to Dr. von Hildebrand and asked him if his own views had undergone any changes particularly with regard to such instances as his praise for the official documents and the greatness of the Second Vatican Council, found on page one of his book. He has informed me that he has indeed greatly modified his views concerning the documents of the Second Vatican Council in that while there are still certain points in them which he welcomes, though only a few, a more detailed study has revealed that such harmful tendencies as horizontalism, communitarianism, and false ecumenism can be detected in some of the documents. This was not apparent to him in 1965 when he wrote his book, and it would have been hard not to react positively to the official documents when contrasting them with the deplorable books, articles, and lectures of priests and theologians who claim to be interpreting the quote-unquote spirit of the Council. Dr. Von Hildebrandt has authorized me to mention the fact that he has modified his opinion concerning Vatican II, and that it will be making textual changes in the next edition of Trojan Horse in the City of God. So I hope you found that helpful. You can find that book as uh, an excerpt from uh, Michael Davies' famous book, Pope John's Council, which has been out of print for a very long time, until recently anyway, when Angelus Press started uh, reprinting it, and it's, it's available as part of a rather larger box set of sort of the essential Michael Davies books on analyzing Vatican II and really helping people to understand why there are so many problems with that alleged council. The set includes Pope Paul's New Mass, Pope John's Council, and Cramner's Godly Order. All very provocative titles if you understand the context of what he's talking about. If you need a help understanding why the hermeneutic of continuity as a concept is so suspect, Michael Davies is your go-to for that. Anyway, hope you found all this helpful. And uh, have a blessed weekend.